CPS Education Podcast. I'm Caroline Toulon, a cardiothoracic trainee in the northwest of England, and today we will be exploring the experiences of surgical teams who have undertaken programmes to support cardiac surgery in developing countries. There are two sets of interviews in this episode. The first is with Mr Enoch Akawa, who's a consultant cardiac surgeon from South Tees NHS Foundation Trust, and also Caroline Baldwin, who's a scrub nurse, very recently retired, but who worked alongside Mr Akawa in the James Cook University Hospital uh, in the cardiac surgery unit. Um, they discussed their experiences working alongside the team at Confo Anochi Hospital in Kumasi, Ghana, uh, to develop cardiac surgery services there. The second interview is with Mr Ram Danapanini, who is a consultant congenital cardiac surgeon based in Alderhey Hospital in Liverpool. We talk about his work with the charity Healing Little Hearts and the impact of its work in developing healthcare for children affected by congenital heart disease in low and moderate income countries. Both of these interviews demonstrate the significant hurdles that have to be navigated in setting up these partnerships, but also the great benefits they can bring, as well as also illustrating the gulf that still exists in healthcare provision worldwide. So let's get started. Oh, well, thank you so much um, for joining me for this podcast recording. I really appreciate it. And I have been trying to um, yeah, learn as much as I can about your mission to Ghana from your fabulous YouTube channel, <laughs> where I've been see- seeing all sorts of things that you dealt with. But um, firstly, if, um, if you want to introduce yourselves, um, if you want to go first, uh, Mr. Okoa. <laughs> Okay, so my name is Enoch Akewa. Um, I'm a cardiac surgeon. Uh, I work um, at South Tees uh, Hospital in uh, Middlesbrough, which is in the northeast uh, of England. Um, and I'm, I'm originally from Ghana, so I, I was born in Ghana. Um, I did um, most of my secondary education in Ghana, so I know it well and uh, obviously have a, a great affinity and love for the country. Excellent. And Caroline, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Caroline Baldwin. I am now a retired scrub nurse. <laughs> as from just a few weeks ago. Well, congratulations, I, also, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I also work, I used to work at James Cook Hospital in Cardio Theatres. Excellent, super. And so you both took part in the, um, in the project, which is joining, or making a partnership, as far as I can understand, with a hospital in Kumasi in Ghana. Um, now, if I can, hopefully, I'll get the, the pronunciation right, um, which is Comfo Anoki Teaching Hospital. Is that correct? Yeah, Anochi. It's Comfo Anochi. It's oh, K-O-I-E's. There yes, you go. It's a, it's a funny sound. It's only in the Ghanaian language. That's what it's called. Excellent. Okay. And that was back in February 2019. Um, but I understand that all the sort of preparation work for all of that will have started months, if not years, before uh, the actual trip out there was. So um, if you can give me sort of a, a background of the kind of, of the scope, how this all started, where the inspiration came to, to go out there and... Okay, so, so like I said, I, I grew up in Ghana, so I know the country a reasonable amount, and I visit it from time to time. And I've always known uh, that there was no provision for cardiac surgery in the northern part of Ghana. Uh, the capital of Ghana is called Accra, and they have had a, a cardiothoracic unit in Accra for at least a decade, doing somewhere between two and 300 um, cardiac operations in adults and children every year. But uh, Ghana has a population of of over 25 million uh, at the last census. So you can imagine that with that size of population and that level of provision, um, 
that there's a big gap there. Mm. Um, Accra tends to serve the southern part of the country, um, but Kumasi, uh, where Comfort is based, is in the middle and looks after most of the middle and the northern part of the country. And they're about something like 12 to 15 million people who drain into the main teaching hospital in Kamasi and, and they're, they're, there's no surgery, surgery provision for, for that population. So that, that was the obvious need. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, um, the first contact came on uh, LinkedIn. Um, Isaac Ochri, who is the uh, consultant surgeon uh, in Kamasi, was uh, doing a fellowship in India and he came across... Uh, my name and sort of just made contact to say, are you from Ghana? Uh, and that's how I first met him. And at the end of his fellowship, when he went back to Ghana, he reached out to say, look, um, I've just been on my fellowship and um, I'm back in Kamasi. There's nothing here. And I'm really looking to set up a cardiac surgery service and uh, I'm looking for some help. Mm. So that's essentially how the journey began uh, and, and the contacts were made. Um, and can you tell us a bit about how um, cardiac surgery is financed in Ghana? Because from what I can see, um, individuals have to pay for their own cardiac treatment. And that in itself, um, I mean, it, it would be expensive for, for me, let alone for, for somebody on a lower salary. And, and so it's hard to imagine how anyone can afford it, quite frankly. Um, how how is that dealt with? Uh, as much? I, know, I appreciate. I think the Aqua Hospital has a foundation that they try and sort of support the cardiac surgery with, um, but it still must be pretty prohibitive for for the majority of of the country. Yeah, that's correct. So so in Accra they have what's called the Ghana Heart Foundation, but that's really limited to patients having surgery in Accra. And uh, my understanding is that broadly the Ghana Heart Foundation will pay for half your cost mm-hmm. uh, for an operation. So. If you, uh, if you think about open heart surgery, uh, they're charging roughly around 12,000 euros. So um, if you go to the Ghana Heart Foundation, they might pay half of that, but then you still have to find 6,000 uh, euros in a country where um, you know, most, most, most people don't earn $10 a day. Mm. Uh, in in Kumasi, uh, there's no Ghana Heart Foundation, so patients are expected to... Um, when they have any procedure within the hospital to, to fund the cost of that procedure. Mm. Uh, and that cost would include, obviously, um, the, the cost of the procedure, but it would include all the hosp- um, hotel and mm-hmm. hospitality that comes with an in-hospital stay, so food, bedding, um, etc., and as well as any drugs, etc., that you have to buy when you leave hospital as part of your operation. So mm. um, the reality is that for most normal citizens of Kamasi, the cost of cardiac surgery is totally uh, prohibitive. Mm. And so when we've been doing that, we've been doing it purely on a charitable basis. Clearly, patients have been having the operation without having to pay for any of the things that we're, we're delivering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, in many ways, is, is one of the real long-term challenges for setting up a service in places like um, Ghana and Sub-Saharan Africa in general. It's how do you get a model... Um, that that's sustainable um, mm. and without large investment by central government that's very very challenging yeah absolutely um and how about the sorts of presentations of heart disease that you see when you're out there is it very different to what you see in the uk or is it something that is um is is more i imagine there's there's quite a degree of congenital heart disease it seems as well as rheumatic heart disease and also all the kind of cardiac disease that we see here in the UK from kind of more westernised lifestyles coming in and what sort of things were you seeing when you were in Ghana? Yeah, so the spectrum of illnesses is totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you can imagine, as you said here, that in the UK, uh, predominantly we're dealing with coronary artery disease, we're dealing with um, elderly patients. Um, uh, but in Ghana, uh, the, the predominant problem is rheumatic heart valve disease. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, a, a problem uh, worldwide um, in um, middle uh, and low-income countries. Um, uh, and the, um, pr- the main conditions that we dealt with uh, where, 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 where rheumatic heart valve disease. We, in fact, saw no patients with coronary artery disease. Mm. Uh, that might have something to do with the fact that there isn't an angiogram uh, in Kumasi, so you can't actually take any pictures of the coronary mm. artery. But, but predominantly, we're seeing patients uh, with that rheumatic heart valve disease. And, and as you allude to, those patients tend to be young um, and, and uh, they're presenting in their sort of fourth uh, or fifth decade um, as a secret of their infection as children. You're totally right that there's also a large portion of patients with congenital heart disease. Um, sadly, one of the things with congenital heart disease, as we know, is that unless it's treated early, a lot of these uh, patients present with end-stage disease. And we certainly saw one of the really important things we did there was really just making diagnosis for patients like that, mm. giving them some idea of their prognosis. And, and, and that's obviously, um, it's a really depressing thing to do, but clearly really important and really valuable as well. Mm. Just going back to your point about no coronary artery angiograms, do they do they have like CT angiograms out there? Is that a possibility or is it no? Okay. <laughs> we, we actually, uh, we, we went back to Ghana, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, in October 2019. Mm-hmm. And on that visit, we did the first ever coronary angiogram mm. uh, in Kumasi. Mm. Um, and, and we did that um, at a... Um, uh, at an institution where they literally just bought their first um, coronary um, angiography kit. So mm. um, it just demonstrates really that the huge um, need that mm. exists in places like that. Mm. Uh, we're so used to doing valvular heart disease and having a coronary angiogram as part of our workup, but you know that just wasn't a, an option that we had in Ghana, for example. Yeah. So if we go on a little bit to how you actually went about setting these things up, well, when did it start and, and what sort of processes did you have to put in place to get your team together to go out there? You might be, Caroline might be better answering that actually yeah. because um, <laughs> like all good surgeons, I'm really good at delegating. <laughs> the floor's yours, Caroline. Go for it. <laughs> well, I, think, I think for us, um, we had maybe maximum six months to get everything together before we actually went out for our first mission. So that was quite a bit of a challenge really. And um, the main problem for us was identifying exactly what we needed for each for each case so all of our um, equipment that we needed and we, at first we just thought it would be things like all of our instruments and mm. sutures and the things that you think of straight away but then we soon realized that it would be actually every single thing that we would need so it was things like even the basic things like skin preparation for the patients, how many theatre gowns, hats, masks, absolutely everything. Mm. So our biggest problem, once we'd realised exactly what we needed, was trying to finance how we would pay for all of that because we couldn't take anything from the hospital trust Mm -hmm. and we couldn't order anything by using the hospital trust's um, ordering system. Um, So our biggest problem, I think, was trying to um, get companies to actually sell products to us Mm. because we were taking things to Africa as well was a big problem for the companies. There was a lot of red tape and they were very sort of, at first they were sort of, oh yeah, I'm sure we might be able to do something. And then as soon as they realised it was Africa, they were like, oh, oh, um, maybe we can't. Um, Why why is that? Because they needed to to ensure that they had traceability of all of the items oh, that they used. Okay. Yeah. 
even things down to um, urine catheters. Mm-hmm. The company that was going to sell us some urine catheters then suddenly, oh no, because I'm not sure, you know, we need to have traceability and how can we keep our traceability going if mm-hmm. we don't know where they, they're going to be used. And and so it, it, that was a very difficult thing for us to, to try and get over. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, we had a lot of help from the local reps of companies that we deal with all of the time who thankfully managed to um, donate some charitable items mm. to us, which might not have been what we normally would use ourselves, but we were just grateful of anything that they could give us. Um, and we also found that our, one of our another biggest problem was the fact that we didn't have our own charity number to order anything. It, yeah. I think at the very beginning, it was a big learning curve for all of us. We maybe should have set up our own charity ourselves and then we would have had a charity number that we, we could then order things mm. from because each company wanted to know, once they knew we were doing a charitable mission, they wanted to know what our charity number was if we were actually ordering equipment. Mm. I did wonder about that because I thought this is an entirely new project. You know, you're basically establishing your own charity by the sounds of things. Yeah, we, we, did, we did get access to, to use the, um, the South Cleveland Heart fund mm-hmm. charity so every single um pound that we raised which was difficult as well mm-hmm. uh, went into that charity and we had a really good treasurer who monitored everything that that we put in and made sure that we only spent exactly what we'd what we put in so we so we, eventually we, we did use we used that to to buy quite a bit of our equipment Mm, fantastic. Since then, we have set up a charity mm-hmm. to get across that problem because mm-hmm. it was clear that we had to do that. Yes. Mm. And in terms of um, personnel and and how you um, sort of had the people to go out there, how did you did you select people? Did people come forward? Did you particularly target individuals that you thought that would be really useful? How easy did you find it to get people to join you? The, the sort of theatre team aspect, the ICU team aspect. The, I saw that there are cardiologists who came along, and there was a whole load of work done with pacemakers, which you know was fascinating because that hadn't, I have to say, as a surgeon, that hadn't crossed my mind. And I thought, of course, you're doing all these valve replacements and people with existing heart valve disease vital to have a pacemaker service out there so did people come forward relatively easily for you yeah so i mean i think mm-hmm. i think when we started there were a number of massive challenges mm-hmm. okay caroline has mentioned finance and mm-hmm. we can talk a bit about that but that's a huge challenge obviously logistics in terms of getting equipment and getting that transported to ghana safely and in time was a big challenge but undoubtedly, the thing that had to work before anything else could work was the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, um, and I'm sure Caroline will echo this, throughout the whole experience, for us, the, the, the biggest benefit, the biggest plus for me was, was the team, the people that we, we kind of got together to do this because we kept each other going uh, at the low, lowest points and we, you know, and we celebrated the high points together and we learned together and it, it was just a fabulous thing. Mm-hmm. So how did I find the team? Mostly I just went around begging, uh, <laughs> in essence. <laughs> uh, a bit of begging, a bit of bribery. Um, to be honest, everyone was really excited by, by, by the sort of the prospect and the vision that, 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 that I sold to them. Um, it, it was clear that um, we needed surgery. So, you know, do I need a theatre nurse? Do I need a, um, a, an ODP? That's, that was obvious. But as you say, the other bits kind of then came. So clearly the need of pacemakers 
we added on the need for really good imaging cardiology because mm. actually these are complex imaging issues uh, and decisions. And so having someone who's really experienced with imaging and imaging valvular heart disease was really important. Um, in our subsequent missions, we took a physio because that was really important. We, we discovered in terms of getting patients out of hospital as quickly as possible, getting them mobilized as quickly as possible. Intensive care staffing was a big issue. We needed good nurses. Um, and of course, because we were operating and we needed 24-7 care, we needed sort of advanced care practitioners as well. So before you know it, you've got a, a big team, but you do need a big team mm -hmm. because uh, when you go to a place like Ghana, where, or certainly Kumasi, where there is absolutely nothing, you do need the people to deliver the service across the whole care pathway, not just in theatre, but you know everything before and everything afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so uh, the team was basically from South Tees, colleagues I worked with South Tees, and some colleagues from North Tees, so we're all from Teesside. We, we work together in our day-to-day -day job, so we know each other very well, which, which made a, a huge difference. And, and to be honest, people were fabulous. They, they, they bought the vision. Um, I came with you know, a very vague plan on a sort of A4 sheet of paper, uh, and a clearly inadequate, and everyone kind of got in there and, and helped us to deliver a really... Um, good team. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing to say is that leading up to the meeting, we did meet once a month um, as a group. And that was really important because it meant that we could really communicate um, and everyone knew what everyone else needed to make it work and, and you know and as we got closer to the to the mission we increased the frequency of those meetings uh, but at all that planning uh, and, and, and as part of that getting to know each other and getting to know what each other does uh, was important to build a team and make the whole mission a success. Excellent and um, so moving a, a bit on to your experiences when you were there so um, uh, how, how did you find working in the environment clearly the, there was already a team there in place and I understand one of the sort of aspects of this whole project is to help train up some of the surgeons there so that they're equipped to deliver this care in the future um, so they were working alongside you in many capacities perfusion surgery anaesthetics etc um, were there were there things what were the particular things that you might have learned from them because I imagine that there's a few tips and tricks uh, and things for navigating um, aspects of surgery out there that they probably uh, could, could teach us a thing or two. Oh. Well I think um, I think when we first got there we knew that there would be a team there mm -hmm. but I think once we actually got there we realised quite quickly that um, the team wasn't the same sort of team as what we have here. Mm -hmm. um, and although there were there was perfusionists definitely, and nurses and the, the anaesthetists and anaesthetic nurses, for to do cardiac surgery, there, there wasn't anybody who'd actually really done that sort of surgery before. Mm -hmm. So it was almost from like starting afresh, really, with with the team. Um, and we soon re we realised quite quickly as soon as we got there, really, that. Although they had the equipment that they'd said that they, when we were having our meetings, we would say, do you have a diathermy, do you have this, that and the other? Or yes, they had all of the equipment, which was great, but the equipment didn't actually work when you tried to use it. Mm. So that was a big a big problem for us, especially um, the perfusionists with the bypass machine. Mm. Our poor perfusionists spent almost the whole of the first Sunday that we got there and half of the Monday trying to dismantle and rebuild the bypass machine to try and... Get it, get it functioning mm. um, and oh, another big thing as well was that although they have the equipment and you check it and you know that it's working 10 minutes after you've started work, started it working it suddenly stops and blows the 
electricity system or whatever, or even for the perfusionist, he started running his perfusion machine and double-checked it again and realised that the piped oxygen that was coming into the machine wasn't actually oxygen. So we then had to go into the corridor and find the, the valve for the piped oxygen that was being piped through through the walls and, and the, the system was empty. So it was all of those sort of things that, mm. that we had to not take for granted that yes, they've got the equipment there and yes, they've got the staff there, but it doesn't actually all come together. Yeah, I guess it's not necessarily been tested in that way before. So you find all these unforeseen problems that, that perhaps were, were never evident um, until you start to do this type of work. Um, that reminds me of one thing I, I saw on uh, one of the <laughs> YouTubes was um, was about uh, having a bio was it a, um, one of the bioengineers uh, someone yes, or the yes. biomedical engineers someone to kind of keep keep the equipment running was as important because without the equipment running you you can't keep the patient running and that's the most important thing so um, and that being a crucial part of your team which perhaps maybe we take for granted a little bit here in the UK when these guys are always working behind the scenes to to keep all our equipment working. There, there are two crucial members on mm. our first trip. One, as you say, is the biomedical engineer. I, I don't even know who my biomedical mm. engineer is in my hospital because I never see them, as mm. you say. But clearly, absolutely crucial because a lot of this kit isn't used all the time. Um, and, and, yeah, so so they're not maintained. And so having problems with kit was, was always an issue. And the other is we, we took along with us a, a lady called Emily Farkas. Uh, Emily's a cardiac surgeon Um uh, in the in the US, who has done quite a lot of work um, overseas uh, and a lot of this sort of mission work with a charity called Cardiostat, and actually having someone who has that experience was crucial, um, and it helped us avoid quite a lot of pitfalls. Uh, so I think if anybody who listens to this is thinking about doing something like this, mm-hmm. it's really useful to have a very close relationship with someone who's got some experience of it, because I think they can help save you quite a bit of trouble mm, absolutely and um, and what about from the surgical side were there what, what sort of things did you learn from from working in that environment or, or, and what things did you find were particularly useful for the surgeons out there was there anything that they particularly picked up on and said oh that's really handy we you know we hadn't thought of that before uh, for me there was there was just so much to learn mm-hmm. um, because the cardiac surgery there is totally different from the cardiac surgery I've been trained mm-hmm. um, to do so you know selecting of patients was a was a really difficult thing Mm -hmm. um i'm used to patients being thoroughly investigated several opinions sought perhaps a discussion in an mdt a very clear plan uh no no kind of um or or very little doubt about diagnosis all that sort of stuff um and very clear kind of evidence of benefit versus risk and and that just wasn't the case there Uh, and when you factor in things like this might be the only chance this patient might ever get to have an intervention uh and things like that you know it it was very very difficult and i would say the most difficult aspect of the whole thing was selecting who to operate on Mm. with the limited time and resources that we had so so that was interesting and that was a huge learning curve um obviously um um in theater that the the challenges um uh around kind of kits and circumstances you know having a a power cut in the middle of an operation was Mm. a new experience for me uh but actually Equally, the thing I learned is how cool the guys were about it because mm-hmm. actually they're, they're so used to working in these environments. Um, I have never used, um, you know, when you, when you use a, 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 a four proline or a seven proline and you throw the other half away, that just doesn't happen. You they use it and use it and use it until all you've got left is the needle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite incredible. So just watching, you know, how they use the material they've got, um, how efficient they are, 
you know, the compromises they have to make uh, in terms of, you know, you know, for example, that there's no ready access to platelets uh, at all. So, you know, uh, and getting a blood transfusion means that you have to get pooled blood from patients who are, or relatives who are around in the hospital. So your whole attitude to hemostasis is totally different because mm. you haven't got FFP and cryo that you can just dial up because you need it. Um, so that was really interesting. Mm. Um, the other thing that was interesting was Ghana, like most of these countries, have a very high prevalence of HIV and hepatitis. Mm. Uh, and actually, we found that pretty much everyone we operated on had some sort of viral illness. Mm. And so, you know, for them, that's quite a challenging way to practice your career, right? Mm. You know, everyone you, you operate on might have HIV or Hep C. I mean, most of us at UNI against Hep B. Um, but, you know, watching the way they dealt with that was also quite insightful. So, yeah, I, I think it's definitely these things are always a two-way process. You, you teach stuff, but you learn learn so much on, on the journey as well. Um, what about medications after the operation? Because we take it for granted again that, you know, you're going to be able to take aspirin or warfarin or give them ticagrelor for a period post-operatively. How available are those kind of medications to people? In, and, and, and how are they able, how's the sort of funding of that as well? Because I imagine you're committing people to lifelong medication as well has its implications for for people um in the longer term yeah absolutely so the whole issues with a number of issues with medication one Mm. is availability the other is Mm. cost and then the third one is access uh, for uh, surveillance, particularly with warfarin and valve disease. And, and those are all challenges. So, you know, patients have to buy their own medicines and they have to pay for them. So if you're, you know, if you're going to, um, you know, put them on to or, you know, that's a very expensive medication and that's just not pragmatic. Uh, drugs like warfarin are cheap, but of course they need regular monitoring. And a lot of these people are traveling quite long distances to get to... Um, to the hospital, we, we, we operate on the chap who drove 10 hours to get to us um, uh, overnight, and then we decided not to operate on him, so he had to drive back, and then mm. we decided we'd operate, and they had to drive back. I mean, these are just huge distances, mm. um, and they live in, in villages when they have no access to regular warfare monitoring, so that's mm. a real issue as well. Um, and, and so, yeah, no, I, I think so broadly, patients can get some medication if they have the money to do it. And they can get money monitored if they're able to travel. But you definitely have to think about that in your decision making. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a classic difficulty we had was a young lady. She must have been about 38, 39. She had, she had children already. She needed a valve. She might have wanted more children. You know, do you put in a mechanical valve or a tissue valve? They're, they're just really, really tough decisions mm-hmm. um, that you try and make along with the patients and their local clinicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the medication is a really crucial part of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, one of the things I noticed uh, was that you were using some quite new technology, um, particularly the imaging cardiologist had a, an echo, a portable echo. I think it was attached to an iPad or something similar. And uh, how much did you find those sorts of things you were able to sort of actually use things that we, we don't use here and would maybe be useful to use here, but we, we haven't. Um, were you able to sort of trial a few new things that you, you thought would be useful yeah, not, not not many, but mm-hmm. actually, when I sit back and think about healthcare in Africa, I think technology is is, is going to be so crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right; that portable echo was really helpful. This is a hospital that didn't have any echocardiography at all. Um, in fact, there was one ECG machine in a thousand bed hospital. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that we, we can't really get our head around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that 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 having technology is really key and. You know, as we go forward, one of, I'm not sure um, how aware people are about uh, devices like um, 
um, they're called cardiocore devices, um, and they're the sort of mobile monitoring of of, of, um, of heart rates and heart rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fairly cheap. They're very easy to use, uh, and and that sort of stuff, that sort of technology, will make a huge huge difference. Mm. Um, the problem, as Caroline says, is that industry's view of deploying that technology in Africa is not quite as simple as you would imagine. Mm. And there are huge hurdles, um, some regulatory, some safety, uh, some just financial, mm-hmm. really. Um, and, and, and that's the difficulty that we have in, in deploying these technologies yeah. there. But there's no question that if we could, they, they would be trans- transformative. Yeah. I was just going to ask Caroline, actually, um, were there any particular things that you learned from your side? Yeah, it, it reminded me a lot of, I've been nursing for a long time, and it reminded me of my nursing when I first started nursing, mm-hmm. how we, we used to use everything, reuse everything, and there's not one thing that goes to waste out there at all. Even from the little containers that we have our prep in, or that we have blood in, or whatever on our scrub table, here at home, immediately at the end of the case that's all disposed of in a clinical waste bag and, and off it goes mm. and there was nothing that was wasted there there would the girls would be trying to oh no you you, you go now and sort of get me out the way because they were taking those bowls re-washing mm-hmm. them and, yeah and i found a stack of them after two or three days into our mission and i was like oh my goodness they're reusing these bowls and we would never do that at home and but you, you just see that they don't have anything, so they they do reuse everything yeah. and they clean everything and use it. And, and it really made me appreciate when I came back home mm-hmm. that how much we do actually just throw things away. And we've seemed to have developed into that sort of culture of, and I know that the reasons why we do it, but we've sort of developed into that culture where everything just gets thrown away and you realise that how much we actually waste mm-hmm. and how much they reuse things. Mm-hmm. Like, like Enoch was saying, right to the very end of the suture. Yeah, yeah. And how possibly if we changed our own mindset a bit, we might find ways around that ourselves rather than disposing quite so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was just going to move on now to um, uh, yeah, what, what the sort of plans are for the future out there. Um, because I understand that some of the sort of team in terms of the theatre team, surgical team have come over to the UK and done some training here as well. Um, so I don't know if uh, who wants to start talking about that first. I don't know if uh, Caroline, you're going to go ahead and see. <laughs> Have you have you been training well, that up a few people? That was in, in, totally invaluable. I thought mm-hmm. it was absolutely brilliant when the, when the staff from um, from Ghana came over to us, mm-hmm. and they were just so enthusiastic and mm-hmm. they worked so hard and really wanting to learn. It was just they must have been exhausted by the time they went back because they were here for I think it was four weeks. I think that they were here for. Was it four weeks or maybe no, small? I can't remember. It was four weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we were only out there for a week and we were absolutely exhausted when we came mm-hmm. back. So, I mean, for them to come over here and, and, I mean, our surgeons at the unit, all of our surgeons at the unit was, were very good with them and everybody, the whole team, just tried, tried to help them all along and I think they had a really good experience when they came over. And it was so different when we went back for our second mission. It was lovely. As soon as we walked into the hospital, we could see straight away the team was completely different to our first mission. And it was just lovely. And they were all ready and geared up and they'd remembered everything that we taught them. It was it was mm-hmm. really, really lovely. Mm, excellent. Yeah, no, absolutely. So our, our plan has always been to try and build a partnership and for them to become sustainable. So mm-hmm. we were never kind of hoping to be keep on to keep on going back. To, to get the local team trained up. So we did our first mission and that was really a scoping mission just to understand 
the team and understand what was needed. And, um, and then we got the team over here because it was clear that one of the things that all needed was to get a vision of what cardiac surgery looks like, what a whole service looks like, what, um, you know, um, what, what, where they need to get to. And I think that was really useful for that. And as Caroline said, when we had our second mission, all that experience was, was, was really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. And in fact, our second mission ended with the Ghanaian team doing a case on their own for the first time, which, mm-hmm. which was tran- trans- transformative mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Clearly, we were hoping to follow on with subsequent missions in 2020. We had three missions planned mm-hmm. uh, in 2020. But um, of course, life is now totally different with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so we haven't managed to get back. But we're in constant contact with them. And we're hoping that um, although we've lost some momentum, of course we have, uh, that when, when, when things get better, that we can really get back on that journey again. Excellent. So would you say that they've actually, because would you say that there's now two cardiac units in Ghana now, the one in the centre and the one in Kumasi? <laughs> that's right. We, will, we yeah. would say that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, well, that's fantastic. Right. That's, 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 that's one more than there was before, right? So that's a, that's a very positive thing. One of the things that we have made really good progress with is with, with pacemakers, because mm-hmm. uh, when the thing with pacemakers is, of course, you can just do them at volume and they're relatively cheaper. So in our two missions, we spent a lot of time training the guys there how to insert permanent pacemakers. And and when they came here, we, uh, two of the cardiologists, spent a lot of time in the cath lab learning how to put in pacemakers. And remarkably, uh, over the COVID-19 pandemic, when we haven't been able to go, they have been independently inserting pacemakers in Kumasi for the first time. It's a small thing, but it's just transformative. You can imagine that these are patients who are, they've got symptomatic bradycardias, they're collapsing and falling, they suffer from sudden death. They've never had an option. But now, if you can afford it, and that's a big if, there is someone there who can actually put a pacemaker in for you. And, and that alone is, is, is something to celebrate. Oh, absolutely. And that's that was a real education on seeing the, the videos or the diary, video diary with seeing... Uh, seeing people in complete heart block that have been living like that for a very long period and you know we'd be we'd be having a you know small heart attack ourselves if we see, see that in our patient in a you know so so yeah absolutely an education completely um and uh, in terms of how it, it's been to train the team from ghana has it given you any insights into training in general um in particular because obviously they made some great progress in really a very short period of time has it given you any insights onto the uk training system at all or thoughts of, of how we can adapt and maybe uh, or lessons that we can learn ourselves um, difficult really because I think that it's just such a different circumstance. So these mm. guys are all um, uh, they they are they are so driven and so motivated. Mm. And the drivers are, are, are slightly different, aren't they? They they not only do they need to acquire skills for themselves, but they need to acquire skills to you know help their entire community. Mm. I mean, whether you have a pacemaker or not. Uh, in the whole of uh, the northern bit of Ghana, relies on whether Lambert can do it for you. Mm. I mean, that, that's that's quite some pressure, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, so I think I think they they come at it with a, a slightly different mindset. But of course, training is the same. It's about enthusiasm. It's about dedication. Um, it's about you know um, putting in the hard work and the time that's that's needed, and having someone to support you through that journey. And, and in, in that respect, it's no different. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I think it's just it's, those are the, the the key ingredients to getting mm-hmm. trained. And I think every trainee yeah. uh, in the UK. Right? 
recognises that and yeah. that, that's no different. I think also the other thing is I wanted to ask about was follow-up and um, and whether that's something that I, I understand there's all the cardiology team, cardiothoracic team there. Um, it, they will have a huge volume of work to do anyway. Um, so how how is follow-up of these patients managed who are geographically, you know, very in very, very different locations uh, in the country? Yeah, so sadly, the patients have to travel, so they do have mm. to all travel back to the, that uh, centre in Kumasi. Um, the surgeon, Isaac, uh, followed them up initially after surgery, and afterwards, the cardiologist, they moved to the cardiology clinic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they do have to drive however long it takes, mm. or however long it takes, mm. uh, however, how far it is to come to Kumasi to be to be uh, looked after. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, one of the things, again, that's happened since our mission is they've managed to buy an echo machine oh. at Comfort so they now can scan these these valves and make sure the patients are okay. Uh, so yeah, so follow up will continue. The cardiologist, a very good cardiologist, they'll mm-hmm. keep an eye on the patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, as long as the patients are able to travel, they'll be seen. Excellent, that's brilliant. Um, and uh, I, I thought there was a comment from one of the cardiologists, and and he was basically saying this is one of the Ghanaian cardiologists. He was saying that it's also about you know trust on their side. They they he's saying you know we need to know that people that people are coming here with the right kit, with the right equipment, with everything, understanding the pathology, and that that's vitally important to them. As essentially they're the gatekeepers, making sure that their patients are safe. You know they're already looking after a huge community with very finite resources and uh, and I, I got the impression that they were very pleased to see you guys had come so well prepared and uh, and so willing to kind of you know, have a two-way conversation about it all absolutely I think there's nothing worse for them than an ill-prepared mission mm. um, you know, if you turn up and you haven't got the kit and they have to um, use what meager the resources they have to, to allow your mission to proceed that's a problem I think if you turn up not understanding what they need that's a problem you mm-hmm. know what, what they need is a partnership mm-hmm. uh, and they need skills transfer mm-hmm. you know they, they don't really need to kind of watch us be brilliant yeah um, they, they, they need skills transfer so you know um, and I think because I'm from Ghana and I, I uh, and I have spent a lot of time thinking and working through with them what they needed I think that was um, that was that was useful, but uh, yes, I think you do need to think very carefully before you go on a mission and, and mm. make sure that you're adequately resourced. That you're communicating really well with the local team. That you really understand what the local needs are uh, and what the local challenges are, and, and that you really set out in partnership with them to meet that. Uh, mm. And I think that's the key to making it work. And so, what's the, have you got any plans for the future? I know it's so difficult at the moment with COVID nineteen, but um, have you got any plans in the next two years to maybe go out again, or have you had to put everything on hold just for now? No, we've definitely got plans. So we, we had an ab- we were going to go in June, that was aborted. Mm. We're going to go in October, that was aborted. Mm. Our current plan is to go uh, in the spring of next year. And mm-hmm. uh, we're all hoping and praying that the Pfizer vaccine works and life yes. starts to be- become yeah. a bit normal then. Yeah. Um, one of the most amazing things that's happened, of course, we haven't talked much about finances, mm, but raising yes. money for these missions are really critical. Um, and for our, our two missions, we, we have had to raise the money ourselves by doing lots of individual charity events and Caroline um, and other members of the team worked really hard to be able to, to raise that money. Um, subsequently, uh, we have um, partners with um, Edwards, the Edwards Foundation uh, who, who saw the work we're doing and brought into the vision and they've provided us with some funds for mm-hmm. our next three missions. Fantastic. Uh, and so, so that's, a, that's a really big breakthrough because actually um, it means that we've got, we can plan with some certainty. Mm-hmm. The Ghanaians know that we've got the resources to be able to do it so they can plan with some certainty. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully 
you know, we can make the, the, the whole vision a reality with that support. So I think um, really important to say thank you to Edwards uh, mm-hmm. and any other charitable um, uh, foundations out there who are interested in this sort of work. It, it makes a massive difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Caroline, are you, I know you're retired now. <laughs> are you planning on going out to Ghana again? As, or are you overseeing or passing on the, uh, <laughs> the flagship? I've passed my baton on. Yeah. <laughs> the, last, the last mission, I took another scrub nurse out with me as well. Mm-hmm. So the two of us together. And now she, Jill, she's she's leading it now from, from the theatres. Excellent, excellent. So you've been able to, I'm sure that you will be uh, called upon again and again to, to give knowledge and insight into all the things that you learnt out there. Is there anything in particular um, that you took away from the whole experience? Um, it, it's hard to put into words, especially the first mission was just so stressful mm-hmm. and so scary because we really didn't know what we were going into mm-hmm. um and the second mission was just absolutely fantastic in mm-hmm. comparison to the first one um but to take away from it is just the the to know how determined and and um how enthusiastic the Ghana team are and the, mm-hmm. i think the like enoch was saying i think the proudest moment of both of the missions was was the Ghanaian team doing their their own operation on that very last Friday Mm -hmm. that was really lovely to see and really really proud to be part of Mm -hmm. to be part of that Mm -hmm. and it's lovely that we we all keep in contact with our own um, members of the team so I keep emailing the girls in in Ghana Mm -hmm. they email back I know the perfusionists are emailing each other and everybody's keeping in contact with each other Mm -hmm. so anything that they need anything that the uh, refreshment on anything or any documentation they ask for and mm-hmm. we can send that backwards and forwards to them so mm-hmm. just that partnership just having that partnership with mm-hmm. them is really lovely oh that's brilliant and actually you mentioning that made me remember another question I wanted to ask you actually quick, uh, quickly and that is about um, there are some platforms now available where you can uh, communicate and uh, talk about operations and even um proctor operations uh, remotely over the internet is that something that you would ever consider or is that something that you've even used at any point in this sort of process we, ha- we haven't used them but mm-hmm. it seems like a really good idea mm-hmm. i mean we, only a few weeks ago uh, the surgeon there sent me an, an echo of a patient with a large left atrial myxoma who was in heart failure um and um you know um we've talked through the possibility of them planning to do that operation with us supporting mm-hmm. i mean i think that there are always uh, challenges uh, mm-hmm. in ghana you know wi-fi and internet access mm-hmm. um in Kamasi is very difficult mm-hmm. um but but i think that's you know we're all learning how to use technology in this covid pandemic mm-hmm. era and, and things are changing so rapidly i think that's a, i think that's definitely uh, an avenue that we need to really think about and explore mm-hmm. get the right platforms that we can use mm-hmm. uh, because it, it could make a massive difference in terms of ongoing proctoring and support for for places like Kamasa. Fantastic. All right, well, thank you very much for talking to me all about it. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm sure loads of people will be really interested and fascinated and, and possibly, you know, looking to join you in the future. You never know. You'll probably get a whole load of applications, I expect, after all of this, because uh, it's certainly, I, I, I would anticipate, you know, that people would want to become involved in this sort of thing. And I understand. I think the SCTS are trying to make it something that's uh, more accessible and, and, and a more official channel that people can, can come and join others that are interested in this sort of work so thank you so much for joining me very much appreciated um and yes good luck for the future with it all i'm sure it'll be a huge success and to the gun and team out there as well <laughs> so you, thank that, you very much caroline for telling us giving us the opportunity to tell our story oh you're very welcome <laughs> So 
thank you very much for joining me. I have with me here um, Mr. Ram Danapanini, who is a congenital cardiac surgeon from Alderhey Hospital in Liverpool. Um, and the reason we're talking today on the podcast is actually about his work with Healing Little Hearts, which is a charity or a foundation, actually, um, which is involved in organising the translation of congenital cardiac surgery into areas of the developing world, lower income, moderate income countries to try and make sure that, that kids have access to the surgery they need um, and, uh, and also to build up um, facilities within those countries themselves. Um, so, yes, we'll have a chat about that. So, uh, Ram, what, uh, what got you into this work in the first place? Thank you very much, Caroline. Um, my involvement was basically as a trainee, and that's going back to 11 years ago um, when I was a trainee in Alder H. Children's Hospital. One of my uh, consultant surgeons was involved in a um, charity camp, what we call in India. So, I, I got exposed as a trainee, and since then, I carried on and it's uh, nearly about 11 years association. Mm. Um, and what are the camps? What happens in a camp and, and where are they? Um, so in a camp what happens is that basically we take a team of medical professionals which include a cardiac surgeon, anesthetist, intensivist, cardiologist and ICU nurses, perfusionist. So mm. approximately about 10 people and uh, we go to a host unit in one of the developing countries. Um, usually we fly out on a Saturday, so reach there on a Sunday, and we screen all the children on a Sunday, mm -hmm. and then plan for the operating from Monday to Friday. Mm -hmm. And then Saturday we hand over the kids to the local team. They will be working with us anyway, but mm -hmm. final handover. And we fly out on Saturday, and by Sunday we come back here and Monday back to work. So essentially, we spend a week of um, our time for these camps at a time. So it sounds pretty intensive as well. Uh, with that sort of, so are you? How many cases might you get done in that time? Yeah, it is very intense. But it, it is something you enjoy. Then you don't realize that it's hard work, mm -hmm. and, and then you enjoy that as well. Mm -hmm. um, it depends upon where we go. Um, in uh, well-set centers we could do up to 15 cases and then we in one camp we have done um, 22 cases in five days because the mm -hmm. center was well set mm -hmm. and uh, going back to the same center they are doing the simple cases themselves so our job is to do complex cases so it could be only 10 cases mm -hmm. uh, but if you take overall at an average we do at least 10 to 12 cases per camp within those five days mm -hmm. of operating Okay. And how do you select those cases? Are they done before you go or is it when you get there that you know what you're doing? Um, a, a, a mixture of two basically. So before we fly out we ask for a list of the patients mm -hmm. so that we can better prepare any special equipment we need to think of our plan. And then uh, once we go there on the very first day when we screen all of them, mm -hmm. then some of the cases um, are such that we have to prioritize them. Mm. Um, so it, it's a clinical priority determines and uh, at the same time um, the number of cases we would be able to do and also we need to think of the limitations as the resources, how many ITU beds they have mm. and also critical planning is such that you don't want to do all the high-risk cases in the first few days, block the beds, mm -hmm. and then nothing else to do. So yeah. a combination of all these things factors in how you select the patients. Mm -hmm. And then we just want to make the most out of that one week. Mm -hmm. um, and we end up normally doing 10 to 12 cases with different complexity. Yeah. 
And so when you're going to, uh, I mean, they're called camps, which is kind of the organisation of the, the team going, but you're actually going to a hospital, which you've already made sure there's specific requirements there that they're going to be able to meet your needs in terms of, I think, making sure there's a bypass machine there, yeah. making sure there's ITU facilities. Yeah. And are these quite often already places that are doing cardiac surgery or is that not necessarily a rule? Does it Can it be people or places that haven't had cardiac surgery teams Exactly, that's true mm-hmm. as well. And we go and support um, centers who have some cardiac surgery. Most of the places where we go are doing adult program, mm-hmm. so that at least we know that they have some uh, operating facilities and then adult intensive care unit, so they would want to do some pediatric cases. And at the same time, we have to s- start from the scratch in some of the uh, uh, situations. It's, it's a continuous ongoing work we do throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And we recently started working with a center in Tanzania mm-hmm. where newly starting, that means that we are actually acquiring a bypass machine here and sending over to them. Mm-hmm. So it's a long-term project. It may take a, an year or two before everything starts. Mm-hmm. But other centers, they probably most likely will be doing some adult surgery, starting to start pediatric programs. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so... How is this? This is all funded by charitable donations to Healy Little Heart. So setting up the bypass machine and everything, and from scratch, that's all. That's all funded by Healy Little Hearts, and no sort of governmental support at all. No governmental yeah. support at all. Mm-hmm. So how it operates is that uh, the Healing Little Hearts is a registered charity in UK. Mm-hmm. It's it's a small charity, mm-hmm. um, and all uh, funding is through donations, through various things we do but charity balls we go and and etc etc in terms of locally we might take some governmental or other charitable organization support there so our aim is that eventually every operation must be and should be free Mm. for the child Mm. Um, and we are able to generate enough money to send the teams pay for their flights sometimes we bear accommodation costs Um, But from the other side as well, we want to make sure that we have help from other charitable organizations or in some cases, governmental support. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of bypass mission, we generated some funding here to uh, get a used bypass mission to be transported Mm -hmm. to Tanzania. Mm. It sounds really impressive to be able to do so much. You know, that's that's really impressive. Um, So it looks... Every two weeks, they're sending out different teams to different places in a normal year. I imagine that COVID has somewhat scuppered plans for this year a little bit, but um, but uh, but that's quite frequent, isn't it? How many times do, a year do you tend to go out yeah. with these teams? Um, I think we're so lucky to have so many generous people, mm-hmm. especially the healthcare workers in UK in mm-hmm. the NHS. Um, most of the congenital hospitals do. Uh, involved in healing little hearts activities it's not just me and uh, there are at least I could uh, quickly recount six surgeons congenital surgeons from UK Mm -hmm. a lot of cardiologists anesthetists nurses from various centers in UK participate so that's how we could make up or divide the work Mm -hmm. and then send up almost a team as you said every Mm -hmm. couple of weeks overall we do conduct about 20 camps in a year uh, and luckily we're managing, but COVID has unfortunately stopped all this. I think our last camps was in February, mm-hmm. and we're eagerly waiting for 
whole COVID to go away so that we can restart. Yeah. And in terms of um, work, it's uh, shared work by a few people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm the lead surgeon and one of the trustees. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a cardiologist as a trustee from clinical groups and intensivist as a trustee who's our founder, Dr. Sanjeev Nichani from Leicester. Mm-hmm. And we have other volunteers, nurses, work with us. Um, so that we have a database of people who want to volunteer, mm-hmm. so that any camp comes, we can send out emails. Are you interested in that? Mm-hmm. So luckily, there are a lot of people who want to come and involve with this work. Mm-hmm. And how can people get involved if they want to, in terms of from a clinical perspective, if there's any nursing staff, perfusionists, surgeons, etc.? Do, do you have any requirements that people need to have before being able to join you on these sorts of things? Um, it is the experience yeah. in, the, in, in the specialty, mm-hmm. basically whichever area of the specialty you come from, mm-hmm. as long as you have experience and motivated, you could join us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can reach out easily. Um, um, the Healing Little Hearts has a website, mm-hmm. um, can be contacted and Healing Little Hearts is active in, on, on the social media as well, mm-hmm. so that somebody will respond right. if somebody wants to be involved. And, uh, and so if we go on to sort of how you deal with cases when you're, when you're out there, um, one of the things I was just mentioning to you before is that congenital heart disease is obviously, some, some people can have one operation and that's it, but you've got a great deal of kids who might need one, then two, then three, however many stenotomies down the line, um, and is that something that's taken into consideration when you're selecting patients? Do you kind of think, well, actually, we could help this kid with one thing, but will we leave them, you know, will we be able to help them in the longer term? Is that something that you have to address when you're, when you're making the decisions, and how do you weigh that up? Because I imagine it's very difficult. Um, you're perfectly correct in, in, in that that figures into our decision-making. Uh, some of the congenital heart defects, especially the univentricular circulations mm-hmm. with the hypoplastic left heart, they are a difficult group of patients because they would need series of operations of univentricular circulation into fontan. Um, and, and the places where we go, most of the children we attend are comes from poor families, and that gives a, that puts a lot of burden on them. We we don't necessarily need to operate and then come. They need to pay for their next visits, medication and etc. Mm-hmm. So in those countries generally single ventricle uh, children are not taken forward for surgery. Mm-hmm. So we try not to embark on that route mm-hmm. because that will be a huge burden on the patients mm-hmm. and the parents and we may not be able to go and complete. Yeah. So that is group of patients we try not to take for surgery, single ventricle patients. Mm-hmm. The other scenario we face is that uh, there could be some very complex post-operative care needed kind of a patients, mm-hmm. some of them, and we know our limitations are that we live within five weeks mm-hmm. and the local team can look after but they're not expert. Yeah. So in such cases what we would advise them is that you may be better off in going to so and so city where they do these operations regularly and you get good post operative care. Right. So those are some of the patients we, we advise the parents that mm-hmm. you are better off in a regular center where you can be looked after for long term. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately sometimes they cannot be able to go that because of the they cannot afford going somewhere else or doing that mm-hmm. and we are forced to take up those cases as yeah. well. Um, apart from those two group of cases, we operate on any case, every case mm-hmm. which comes through. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, and that's a really interesting thing that, um, that in particular with congenital heart disease, is the parents. Is that you, you, you know, with adults, they might be able to go and, and you know, be in hospital on their own, but when you've got kids and you've got families that don't want to leave their child on their own, let alone, <laughs> you know, that's a, a whole extra layer of support that's needed and, and extra layer of consideration for sure. Um, wow, that's really interesting. What about things like, because I know in some of the procedures that we're doing here, it's homographs are used and various other um, sort of equipment. Um, how accessible is that when you're out doing one of these camps? Is that something that you're able to use frequently or is there other alternatives and what sort of things have you encountered that have grown up challenges with operative techniques? Yeah. That's a very interesting question <laughs> since you've asked. Uh, um, you're right that when you go to these places, you do not have the valves and homographs available A, because um, homographs generally are not available in those places anyway. And uh, most of these places now, you may be able to get valves but they are too expensive mm. and they are adult size, pediatric you don't get. In in those cases you become innovative and then you create your own valves and uh, suppose most of our um, children need um, pulmonary valve or pulmonary homograft or a pulmonary uh, conduit and um, because of these camps I've learned the technique of creating own tube graft mm. uh, of a pulmonary valve using uh, patient's autologous pericardium as a leaflet mm -hmm. and um, it's, 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 it forces you to learn the new ways mm. of reconstructing the valves and then making your own valves. Um, so we did that quite a few times that use patel, patient's autologous pericardium and reconstruct the valve. Fantastic, so, so you literally, you, you're not within their, within their own great vessel or whatever, you're, you're literally suturing in some pericardium and constructing a valve in situ, is that what you're saying? Yeah, what we can do is that we take autologous pericardium yeah. um, as a valve leaflet tissue and yeah. then you can use any conduit like right. a Dacron graft. Uh, Excellent, I see. So it's almost like a valve repair. Like it is, a, yeah. Some yeah. Sort of valve sparing repair. But that's right. And sometimes if, if you have uh, um, available pericardial patch, yeah. you fold that as a tube, mm -hmm. but you put autologous pericardium as a leaflet. As a leaflet in there. Yeah. Yes, I see. And now... It sounds. It sounds really. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, excellent. Um, and also interesting what you're saying about the fact that you know these are kids and they will need to grow, and so therefore you do have to consider what you're replacing with and the facilities for growth. And do you, how do you manage with um, how often are you able to put artificial heart valves, like mechanical valves, in? Is that available at all, or is that just not something that's, that's uh, used at all in this circumstance? Uh, uh, Nowadays, most of the countries, they are available, yeah. but the problem is that you need to pre-order and then make sure that it's delivered to that center. Right. Yes. So mm -hmm. it, it is possible in countries like uh, India, mm -hmm. but may not, it may not be possible in countries like Africa. Mm -hmm. So other option we have is that if you know, that's why we look at the cases, mm -hmm. if you know what kind of case we have and we, as, as a backup or if you need to, mm -hmm. sometimes we organize the valves from here mm -hmm. through the companies and yeah. then take them to implant them. I see. Right. Um, and in terms of one of the other things that you use a lot in paediatrics is echo and imaging and getting a really good idea of exactly what sort of 
defects you're going to see because I imagine there might be a few surprises thrown in for some of these kids because Definitely. you're going to get there with one thing and oh what do you know they've got something else as well <laughs> is, is that how do you manage uh, to that side of it a the surprises and b how you get all the imaging yeah um, you, you're right that I mean advanced imaging like MRI is mm-hmm. not available in a lot of the places uh, some centers do have CT scans but basically mostly we rely on echocardiograms mm-hmm. That's why it's important that on the very first day, we thoroughly check through the anatomy. Mm-hmm. You always get some surprises, but you have to deal with that. Yeah. On odd occasional case, when you are not certain, we do take that effort to get a CT scan mm-hmm. somewhere else mm-hmm. uh, and then plan that for next camp. Mm-hmm. I see. So that's, that's the advantage of having so many in the ongoing. You can actually say, "Oh, well, we can't do it this time, but next time we'll we'll be back." You know, excellent. Correct. And and how have you managed with training surgeons locally in this? And not just surgeons, but I suppose cardiologists uh, as well as local perfusionists, because uh, I understand there's a continuing medical education program as well that goes alongside. Yeah. Um, the. Um, Apart from operating on children, mm. we do concentrate on all these areas mm-hmm. that uh, we try and make sure that there's a continuous medical education program for the local general pediatricians mm-hmm. so that we can tell them about the congenital heart disease. In terms of training areas, each of us, the cardiologists, try to train the local team of cardiologists. Not only that, when you have residents over there, they do teaching sessions for the residents, mm-hmm. so is the surgeon with the adult surgeon we are working with our other trainees mm-hmm. um, and we do have very good success stories and then uh, there's one center we kind of adopted like myself and um, you know my colleague Prem from mm-hmm. Australia oh, yes. yeah, yeah. both of us yeah. together we adopted this center a place called Vijayawada in South India mm-hmm. so before 2015 they weren't doing any surgeries at all so we first started our camp in December 2015 uh, and three four years time with continuous camps, the local adult surgeon is well trained enough that he would do 20 pediatric cases Mm -hmm. every month Mm -hmm. along with his adult practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we continuously support them with, uh, we have a WhatsApp group Mm -hmm. for complex cases where the cardiologist, cardiac surgeon, myself and my colleague from Australia, Mm -hmm. they share their echocardiograms difficult cases and we discuss and then give them an advice. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's an ongoing program of training. both surgically, cardiology, and intensive care as well. And have you, this is a, a, just because I've, I've seen it recently and I think it's quite exciting, is there are some uh, sort of communication devices now available where you can supervise people remotely. Um, I think proximity is the, is the thing that I've seen recently, but uh, one of the, is that something that you've considered in sort of following up in these educational programs that you're able to not only remotely advise on the echo but potentially intraoperatively as well exactly i mean we we did have initial discussion with the company Mm -hmm. and the idea is that uh, uh, we set up a video camera there Mm. uh, and then a monitor here so that we are able to watch the operation Mm. live and then we'll be able to guide the surgeon yeah Um, and i think it's very essential to move on with the technology Mm -hmm. because previously we have had uh, incidents where we had to talk to the surgeon mm-hmm. in theater live yes uh, where somebody else is showing the picture on a phone or mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. so I, i'm sure 
in the near future, working with this company, we mm. can adopt that technology so that we'll be able to directly watch the operation mm. and able to clear any doubts the surgeon has mm. or tell him what to do and etc. And um, in terms of follow-up for these kids, how does that work? Because obviously, you know, some of them might need things like warfarin in the longer term, or uh, or even monitoring of, of the sort of narrowing of any conduits and things like that. Is it, how how's that managed? Um, two ways. Um, some of the centres we may go very infrequently, mm-hmm. but some of the centres which I mentioned, Vijayawada, there's another centre called Karimnagar in South India. Mm-hmm. We're going very often, in the sense, mm. at least two to three times a year. Mm. So that um, uh, while we are there, we call the previous patients mm-hmm. back so that we ourselves can see them. Uh, so it's a direct follow-up by ourselves. Mm. And it's quite nice for us and the volunteers to mm. see them coming back, um, thriving. Mm. And the um, rest of the cases, what we do is that because we are constantly in touch with the local cardiologists, they follow these patients. Mm. And uh, any issues, any problems, they still contact even we left that place mm-hmm. so that for our advice. Mm-hmm. And we constantly advise them as to any issues. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of some of these patients who might need a shunt as a baby initially, mm-hmm. they would need a definitive operation yeah. and we make sure that they come back when we are there. Yes. Oh yeah, I remember shunts. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, I was going to, are there any particularly memorable moments uh, um, from, from your um, trips that spring to mind? things that maybe you've had to handle that you weren't necessarily expecting or you've already mentioned about reconstructing valves from pericardium but um, any circumstances that you've thought mm, this is a bit different from home? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the camps generally are very nice that you have um, good memories, mm. good f- make good friendships especially you try different nice food which, mm. is, which is good as well. <laughs> But um, sadly, we do have or we do face situations like that where, which we don't see here and that makes you a bit sad and then mm-hmm. that makes you so committed for these camps. Yeah. And one of that is that um, the ventricular septal defects, the VSDs, mm. as you know, in developed countries, we close them by six months. Mm. The reason is that so that they don't get fixed pulmonary hypertension. Yes. And uh, unfortunately, when we go to these areas, we see kids of 12, 13, 14 year olds with simple VSDs, mm. which can't be repaired, yeah. or which can be repaired with high risk. Yeah. They're already got pulmonary hypertension. Mm. And, and that is one example of things you don't see in this yeah. country at all. We never see a 12 year old with a VSD with yeah. pulmonary hypertension. Um, and unfortunately, it's very sad that sometimes there are established Eisenmenger syndrome that yeah. you can't do anything. And those are the sad memories we mm-hmm. we take back. Um, but apart from the cases of those, mm-hmm. you generally have happy memories yeah. and then you generally enjoy the camps. So I was going to ask you a little bit about Team 1C because that is, I understand, your very own sort of collective group of parents actually from here at Alderhey whose own kids have gone through congenital heart operations and they've, in fact, one parent in particular set it up, I think, as well, helped set it up um, and they actually raise money for healing little hearts specifically so that hopefully they can assist parents in other areas where they may have less fortunate access to health resources. So what what sort of things have you been involved in from that point of view? 
Um, the team, once as I said, is a group of parents from the northwest of England. Um, how it uh, started is that uh, some of the children's parents um, got together, and these ch children were operated here at Aldehe. Mm -hmm. um, they did. They they came to know that uh, us from Aldehe go and go to abroad and do these operations. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the mother um, suddenly she thought that okay we're getting it all for free we know where to go everything is done for us so what is the situation for the kids other parents in the other countries that they got either have no facilities and then they don't have any money mm. so i think that really touched that mother and at the same time a group of other parents who are in the hospital at that time they talked together and they thought that um, they wanted to do something they wanted to do something um, to help out these children. They call these children as their cousins yeah. and uh, also they wanted to pay back for the, the, the healthcare professionals who are helping them here mm -hmm. in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, so they formed a team called Team 1C. So mm -hmm. initially started by one person mm -hmm. with four other people and mm -hmm. it's grown into about 150 or so members. Mm -hmm. The name comes from the cardiac ward here is called 1C. Yeah, it's I wondered the, if it was from that. It's <laughs> on <laughs> so the first floor C ward, so that's mm -hmm. where they come from. Yeah. And they do various activities of doing balls and then doing kids related activities, uh, mm -hmm. fun runs and etc. Mm -hmm. And they, make, they raise money. And what we do to pay back to them is that we name the camps on the names of the children. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> we first started it by naming on the, um, taking the name after a child who passed away, mm -hmm. so that we named the camp as that child's camp. Mm -hmm. And it helped uh, to those parents in a big way that mm -hmm. they felt some kind of satisfaction that uh, though they lost the child, yeah. their efforts have helped in saving other children. Yeah, that's hugely generous. I think. Oh no, it's a, it's a, yeah, very generous thing for on all sides, really. Um, you mentioned something very interesting earlier, and that was about the fact that you've got a registrar who's come here, who you've met from going through all your work at uh, Healing Little Heart. So there's sort of movement uh, back and forth, and I used the word cross-pollination. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the right word or not, but um, to, yeah. to, that's, that's kind of come out of these uh, scenarios. So does that happen? Is that something you've, you've seen um, before? Is that, how does that work? Um, that's an interesting word, yeah. cross-pollination. <laughs> yeah. um, we consider these camps as mutually, mutually learning and mutually beneficial because uh, I see and my team members see that when we go out, we see new things, we learn new things. Um, and uh, there are benefits both ways. We are going there to train people and also we're getting the trainees from there. Mm -hmm. So if during these camps, we come across some of the local trainees who mm -hmm. are interested, enthusiastic, they wanted to come and work so they know whom to contact. And what we do is that um, we have this excellent scheme through Medical Training Initiative or the Royal College of Surgeons have surgical international training. Mm -hmm. So we sponsor them through that scheme so that they can come and uh, spend two years of their training here and then they'll go back. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, they go back and practice mm -hmm. pediatric cardiac surgery and then we continue to support them. Mm -hmm. And we had a number of trainees coming through that, through all the hay in not just cardiac surgery, um, cardiology and intensive care as well and yeah. some of them want to do mixed together cardiology ICU mm -hmm. so that's where we that the hospital or the NHS benefits mm -hmm. 
by getting trainees across. Fantastic. And uh, I was going to say, I think, lastly, this is all done in your spare time, in your annual leave time. <laughs> so, you know, very, it's very generous to be giving up the, your annual leave. How do your family feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they're, they're very generous. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're very generous and uh, they understand um, because uh, um, they know. They know yeah. the difficulties in, in those countries, the children and the parents. Um, uh, it was a bit difficult as well. Initially, my family agreed for two weeks yeah. a year, but it was a good negotiation to get them to agree for three weeks a year. Yeah. Um, I think I'm so thankful for my wife and daughters that yeah. they would let use my annual leave for yeah. this work. They're, they're happy to pack you off so you get <laughs> probably keep going. Yeah, probably they'll have the peace when I'm away. <laughs> and I see great benefits for the trainees mm. as well uh, embarking on these camps because as I mentioned in a week uh, suppose you're a congenital trainee you will be exposed to see about 50 cases and echocardiograms mm. while you're there you'll be exposed for about 15 operations in a week which would take you for one month or two months mm. and not only that because some of the cases the simple cases are done by the trainee so mm. when trainees comes with me they might do five six cases in in one week mm. um, so from the trainee's point of view it is very good and not only that it it gives you apart from the surgical and medical um, uh, experience mm. a different kind of experience mm. as to how to work uh, as a good team in difficult and different conditions how to work with um, inadequate uh, facilities mm. and it is it's a good uh, opportunity if the trainees are interested to embark on. And I think um, the Society of Cardiothoracic Surgeons is also interested in humanitarian work. Mm -hmm. They're starting some background work um, with a group of people to um, to make it an established uh, part of SCTS activity. Yeah, yeah, so that's exciting, yeah, I guess, <laughs> ongoing projects for that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been really, really interesting to hear all about it. And it gives a different perspective because, of course, you know, dealing with congenital cardiac disease shows up all sorts of different issues to adults. Um, and, yeah, really interesting hearing how things go. And good luck with everything in the future. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thank you very much, Caroline. Thank you. So thank you again to Caroline Baldwin, Mr Enoch Okawa and Ramdana Panini for giving up their time to talk to me on this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast and I'll put links to uh, the Healing Little Hearts website and also to the website that you can access all the YouTube videos on uh, for the Ghana team and the work they did out there. It's well worth watching uh, so I'll put all these links in the show notes for you. Um, thank you very much for listening and as well always get in contact uh, if there's any thoughts you have comments or suggestions and you can contact me uh, through the um, email address which is sctseducationpodcast at gmail.com or on twitter using the handle at podcast underscore scts see you next time